Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I wrap up my culture war series with a focus on the current war on transgender persons. I am thrilled to have an exclusive interview with an esteemed academic who is both a subject matter expert and is also working with transgendered youth and their families. That interview will be immediately after this podcast. As I record this, it's the last week of the semester, or as I like to call it, student syndrome week which just means procrastination. Every instructor knows the term, and I suspect they're all getting the desperate 11th hour emails like the ones in my inbox. Would you like to hear some? Yes, yes. I'm sorry I missed so many assignments, but my family was on vacation. I didn't have time to email you. Is there anything I can do to make them up? Hey, what's up? I was sick a while back, and like, I'm better and all, but my grade sucks right now, so can I do some extra credit? Okay, so now on today's rather heavy topic. In the past several years, we have seen a rather new and escalated war on transgender persons and drag queens. This has accelerated quickly and now it seems to be at a fever pitch. Before I continue with the present state of affairs, I just want to provide a brief historical context. Gender fluidity has been around a long time. Some would say since the beginning of time. Most people have probably heard of the term burdash. Anthropologists use the term burdash to refer to Native American Indians who assumed the dress, social status, and role of the opposite sex. They were essentially trans. University of Florida linguist Dr. George Aaron Broadwell has researched and documented the role of Native American transgendered persons. Broadwell has written about how in the 1500s, trans people among the Timucua tribe were recognized and celebrated. They had important roles such as caring for the dead or injured during war and nursing people back to health. Broadwell notes that the Timucua tribe recognized trans people for their unique strengths. He has written about how when the Spaniards arrived, they imposed a rather oppressive brand of Catholicism, which was anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-pagan, anti-woman, etc. This, coupled with the near eradication of the native peoples, are a few of the reasons that transgender persons throughout history are not more widely recognized. Gender fluidity is nothing new, and I think that this history should be in textbooks, but I don't see this happening, at least not in Florida or Texas or Tennessee. Here is a clip of Sammy Norjans, an actor and transgender activist who appeared in season four of Transparent. Transparent, by the way, is a show that I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. From Central Africa to South America to the Pacific Islands and beyond, there have been populations who recognize multiple genders, and they go way back. The Hijra of India and Pakistan, for example, have been cited as far back as 2,000 years ago in the Kama Sutra. Indigenous American nations each have their own terms, but most share the umbrella term two-spirit. They saw gender-variant people as shamans and healers in their community, and it wasn't until the spread of colonialism that they were taught to think otherwise. I like how he succinctly presents the history. Before I fast forward to present day, it is very important to note while this intense discrimination and marginalizing of trans people and female impersonators is coming exclusively from the right, however, this was not always the case. In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the gay rights movement, which was largely male, at first often excluded drag queens and trans persons from meetings and marches and shunned them. 
They felt that including these people and even effeminate men at the time would hurt their cause of being accepted by mainstream society. This also happened in the women's rights movement and the civil rights movement for people of color. And importantly, trans people were the ones who started the Stonewall riots and were early pioneers for gay liberation. And yet they were treated poorly by most in the gay rights movement at the time. While they were routinely beaten, locked up by police, harassed, and raped, they had also had to fight like hell to be accepted within the gay rights movement. Here is a clip of Emmy-winning actor and LGBTQ activist Laverne Cox explaining the poor treatment of trans people by the gay community. She references Sylvia Rivera. Uh, in 1973, Sylvia Rivera um, had to fight her way onto stage at the um, Gay Liberation Rally that year. She was being told by organizers that she did not represent the community, that they did not want queens mm -hmm. um, representing the community, that, that queens were anti-feminist, and, and she fought her way onto the stage that day. And, she, and she's talked about being arrested, beaten, raped, that she knows people who have been arrested beaten and raped and um, and that she warned us that the, um, the our LGBT movement should not become a movement for white middle-class people. Rivera was a transgendered activist who was a veteran of the 1969 Stonewall riots and a tireless advocate for her fellow trans sisters who were shunned by all of society including gay society after Stonewall, pride parades began in 1970, and Rivera participated but was not allowed to speak. The organizers tried to exclude transgender people. In a 1973 parade in New York, Rivera grabbed the microphone, got some applause from her fellow queens, as she called them, but then was booed off the stage and escorted out. Here is a clip of an exacerbated Sylvia Rivera speaking to that gay audience at the 1973 parade about being shunned by the gay community. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the f wrong with you all? In addition to trans people being shunned by the gay rights movement early on, lesbians were shunned by some feminist leaders in the early women's rights movement. Betty Friedan, author of The Feminist Mystique, demonstrated her homophobia in her book. In that book, Friedan decried, quote, homosexuality that is spreading like a murky smog over the American scene, end quote. She also wrote that lesbians were, quote, a lavender menace who threatened feminism. Here is Rudy Rigg, an Australian history teacher. Did you know that lesbians were once called the Lavender Menace? Let's go back to the 60s and 70s. The gay liberation movement was beginning and early feminism had taken off. Both movements were separate and the women's movement wanted to keep it that way. Early feminists believed that associations with lesbianism in them would threaten women's progress due to lesbians' often mass gender expression. Feminist leader of the National Organization for Women, Betty Fried, worked to have lesbian rights group Daughters of Bilitis removed from First Congress to Unite Women in 1969 and labeled lesbian feminists the Lavender Menace. 
You may have noticed that she referred to Betty Friedan as Betty Fried, but everything else seems accurate. In terms of the civil rights movement for African Americans in the United States, there were many in the movement who did not want gay people to be associated with the movement as they thought it would further marginalize them with white society and hurt their cause. Dr. Martin Luther King was not one of those people, and he pushed back against any homophobia. One of the most influential and effective organizers of the civil rights movement, openly gay Baynard Rustin, has been credited with organizing and leading the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Many did not want Rustin involved, and they asked Dr. King to exclude him. Dr. King refused and told them that Rustin was his friend and that he would be one of the faces of the movement. In a 1960 letter, King told a colleague, quote, we are thoroughly committed to to the method of nonviolence in our struggle, and we are convinced that Bayard's expertness and commitment in this area will be of inestimable value. Despite Dr. King's support, most historians believe that Rustin's profile and legacy would have been much stronger had he not been openly gay. Here is Rustin's longtime partner, Walter Nagel, speaking to CNN in 2018. Byard was open about his being gay. Byard always said that Dr. King didn't really have a personal problem with him being gay. Dr. King really needed Byard at different times because Byard was a person of great creativity, great intellect, and he was doing things for the movement that really nobody else could do. After the March on Washington, he became a much more visible figure. He was really out there in the thick of the movement. We're interested in making it possible for people to live like human beings. About the so-called disruptive child. But as the movement took off, he needed to step back and get out of the limelight for a while so that people wouldn't be distracted by the fact that he was gay. That was really the piece that kept him from rising in the movement the way he could have had he not been. I will just note here that given the time period and what African-Americans had to deal with at the time, it's quite admirable that Rustin had the role that he did. While I thought that this history would add some much-needed context, to be clear, the attacks on transgender persons today and drag queens and anyone who does not fit into certain boxes is coming seemingly exclusive from the right. I just wanted to emphasize that throughout history, people who don't conform Two rigid gender roles have been persecuted by all sides, so now fast forward to the present. Over just the past year in the United States, there has been a sweeping and ferocious attack on the rights and dignity of transgendered people across the country. In lashing out against LGBTQ people, lawmakers in at least eight states and counting have even gone as far as to introduce bans on drag performances that are so broad that they threaten the ability of any gender non-conforming person to simply exist in public. In states led by Republicans, conservative lawmakers have introduced or passed dozens of laws targeting transgender people, including prohibiting the, the use of bathrooms consistent with their gender identity and limiting access to gender-affirming care. Many states, all Republican-controlled, have actually taken away parental rights have made, and have made it illegal for parents to seek 
medical care, often life-saving medical care for their children. Families have literally left the state of Florida because of this. Just this week in Montana, Republicans in the state legislature misgendered a Democratic state representative on purpose and called for her to be censured. Much of the talking points and speeches given by Republican legislators in state houses throughout the U.S. have been mean and hateful. They have not been able to demonstrate how allowing people to dress and drag or allowing parents to take their children to doctors to seek life-saving, gender-affirming care is actually harming anyone. Here is just one example of this hatred. Here is Florida Republican Representative Webster Barnaby of Deltona, Florida, speaking to transgender persons on the floor of the House. To all the folks that are in the audience that consider themselves gender dysphoria, um, cis, I don't know what all that means. I really don't know what all that means. I'm, I'm looking at society today, and it's like I'm watching an X-Men movie uh, with people that, when you watch the X-Men movies or Marvel comics, it's like we have mutants living among us on planet Earth. There is so much darkness in our world today, so much evil in our world today, and so many people who are afraid to address the evil, the dysphoria, the dysfunction. I'm not afraid to address the dysphoria or the dysfunction. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and all of your demons and all of your imps who come and per per parade before us. That's right, I called you demons and imps who come and parade before us and pretend that you are part of this world. That was hard for me to listen to, and I suspect it was hard for some of you to listen to also, but I think it's important for everyone to know what is being said in legislatures throughout the country. The fact that this person is an elected official making any kind of decisions for others is frightening. What I find most interesting is that he admits to not understanding the issue. He said he did not know what gender dysphoria is, rather than ask questions or educate himself. He called transgender youth in the audience mutants, imps, and evil demons. Had past speakers like Peter Rudy Wallace or John Mills been Speaker of the House, this person would have been censured or made to apologize. Here is Daily Wire host Michael Knowles speaking at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology at every level. Now, no matter what positions people have on legitimate issues up for debate, the fact that a prominent speaker at a major Republican convention called for people to be eradicated and received applause is just frankly disturbing to me. I've talked about the United States, but indeed there is a global context. This anti-trans crusade that we see in the United States is happening around the world. A September 2021 report by the Council of Europe's Committee on Equality and Non-Discrimination found that, quote, significant advances, end quote, achieved in recent years for LGBTQ plus people in Britain and Europe are, quote, under threat. The report also found that attacks on transgender people have been particularly egregious in Hungary, Poland, 
Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, and Britain. Since that report, even more countries and U.S. states have advanced draconian laws. In the U.S., there are frankly too many bills advancing for me to keep track of. As I am recording this, there are a flurry of anti-LGBTQ laws being passed and debated in several states, including North Dakota and Kentucky. There are also lawsuits and protests, and things are at a fever pitch. Uganda just advanced one of the harshest laws in the world. Punishment would be life in prison for anyone engaging in same-sex relations. We see this interconnectedness with far-right playbooks here in the United States. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is following the playbook of Hungary's far-right President Viktor Orban. Orban passed oppressive anti-LGBTQ laws in 2018. In a previous podcast, I documented how people in the DeSantis administration have admitted, actually boasted, that they model legislation such as the Don't Say Gay Bill and various anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans laws after what dictator Orban did in Hungary. In fact, the anti-gay and anti-transgender legislation passed in Florida is often word-for-word word copied from Orban's anti-LGBTQ laws. DeSantis and other Republican governors and legislatures are emulating Hungary's oppressive dictator. Lawmakers on the right and influencers like Tucker Carlson routinely go to Hungary to meet with and praise Orban, and Orban is a regular visitor to conservative events in the United States. It is important to emphasize here that since Viktor Orban took over Hungary, their democracy scores have been dropping precipitously. I talk about Freedom House because it is my favorite democracy index to use. Freedom House had Hungary at 76 out of 100, a high C, and labeled it as free in 2017. Since Orban declared that Hungary would be illiberal, like Turkey, China, and Russia, and rewrote the constitution, Hungary's democracy has been downgraded. It is now considered only partly free, with a score of 66, a D, and it keeps dropping. Experts predict that it will be downgraded even further if Orban continues with his totalitarian anti-democratic policies. We can see a direct nexus to the following of U.S. democracy scores after Republican policies in the U.S. modeled after dictators, such as refusing to concede an election, the insurrection, the big lie, and the denial of minority rights by leaders such as DeSantis, the U.S. dropped from an A democracy to a low B, and many predict that it will be downgraded again next year. In February, Dr. Brett Zimmerman of the Simmons University Department of Public Health in Boston wrote about this in the American Journal of Public Health. Zimmerman documented that this increase in interpersonal violence against trans people is augmented by organized extremist violence at pride parades and drag queen story hours. He argued that this sense of entitlement by people who want to be in the majority while simultaneously denying them to others is just inconsistent with the spirit of U.S. democracy. Whether we're talking about democracy in the United States, in Hungary, in Turkey, in Russia, attacks on drag queens or transgender people or people of color or democracy, this is all interrelated and we must see the gestalt of all of this. Now I will talk about how these culture warriors on the right have added 
drag queens to the mix. Clemson University professors Alyssa Davis and Heather Kettery argue that contemporary culture wars are different from those of previous decades because instead of being driven by political and intellectual elites, they are often fought by populist voices on social media platforms. Just a side note here, in my podcast about the morality culture war and the religious right, Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell were political elites that these professors are referring to. So in these new culture wars, social media can redefine community so that threats emerging in one geographical area reverberate around the country. We see this with Drag Queen Storytime, where a seemingly isolated Drag Queen Storytime event in a small rural city seems to ignite a debate and end up on local news, but then it spreads around the country because there is this vast network funded by private organizations and sometimes public tax dollars that is fighting drag queen story times everywhere. So they coordinate it, but it seems local and organic. And I guess the point of all of this is that the internet and social media allows this coordinated campaign to flourish. We saw the same thing with the people who went to the school board and threatened school board members and threatened teachers and um, school board members had to resign because their lives and their children's lives are being threatened. They all seem very localized and organic, but there was um, a network fueled by people like Christopher Rufo that funded it, that promoted it, and that kept it going. For those who don't know, drag queen story times are just events where drag queens go to public libraries and they read to children. The children have to be accompanied by their parents, and it's a wholesome event. I was able to trace Drag Queen Story Time back to 2015. It was created by Michelle Tia and Radar Productions under the leadership of Julian Delgado in San Francisco. And now I will just read their mission. Quote, Drag Queen Story Hour celebrates reading through the glamorous art of drag. Our chapter network creates diverse, accessible, and culturally inclusive family programming where kids can express their authentic selves and become bright lights of change in their communities and since about 2018, these drag queen story hours have been met with violent protests by largely Christian nationalist white supremacist groups like the Proud Boy in the United States. But it's not just happening in the United States. In Britain, demonstrations against the readings have been organized and supported by far-right nationalist groups, including the Independent Nationalist Network, INN, and the Patriotic Alternative. Basically, they're the UK version of the Proud Boys. These critics say that these drag queen story hours are inherently sexual and that children are just too young to be introduced to LGBTQ people. They also talk about sexualization of children and grooming of children, and they have not provided any evidence of how anyone is harmed. No one has to go to these, and the parents who take their children usually have to sign a form, and the parents definitely have to be with the children. So as I see it, people who oppose this are just trying to take away parental rights and tell parents that we know better than you how to raise your children. We know why politicians and political operatives start these culture wars. They make people angry and worried, worried for their children, worried for their way of life, being threatened, and on and on. These culture wars are like 
shiny objects that politicians can dangle to take attention away from the things that they are doing or not doing. Things like things like taking away health insurance and Social Security, shifting taxes from the rich to the middle class and the poor, and not doing anything about gun violence or consumer protection. Look over here. They are making your children cry. Don't look at us. As I mentioned that all of these culture wars have real victims, and drag queens are victims in this, and I am going to play a clip from Balson Marmillion from a previous interview I did with him because he articulates this better than I ever could. Anybody who knows drag queens know that they're sort of the happiest, nicest people in the world who love children and giving most of their time away for benefits and make very little money, by the way. Uh, but this is like woke or this is like cancel culture. Pulling that drag queen word words out, that is easy to set on fire and to create fear and running to the hills uh, with those families who occupy all the churches. I really like how he puts that. I talk a lot about democracy and policy and wonky stuff on this show, but it's very important with these culture wars to understand the humanity, the real people involved. And I hope one consequence of seeing all this play out is that we as a people will be kinder to one another and especially to minorities who are experiencing discrimination. And now for a segment I like to call Rejected. Rejected. Here is this week's rejection. I wrote to Senator Elizabeth Warren's office saying that it would be the highlight of my life to interview her. Here is the response. Hi, William. Thanks so much for reaching out to our team. Unfortunately, because of the senator's tight schedule and events moving around, we won't be able to accommodate your request for an interview. We are so grateful for your time and for thinking of us. You know what? Don't take it personally, ma'am. Since Senator Warren could not be here, I'm going to play this statement she made last summer, which I think is very powerful. On the first day of Pride Month this year, Florida's Republican governor signed a piece of anti-trans legislation into law. It's part of an ugly trend. All year long, Republicans have been attacking trans children with hateful new laws. They're keeping trans kids from getting gender-affirming, life-saving health care. They're kicking trans kids off sports teams. They're making it harder to grow up trans in America. So I'd like to take a moment just to speak directly to anyone who's trans. You deserve to be surrounded by people who embrace your identity. You deserve to be seen and to be loved for who you are. And now, here's my message for cisgender people. It's our duty to fight alongside the trans community. Speak out against these hateful laws. Tell these lawmakers that you will not tolerate their intolerance. Lift up the voices of trans people, but also make sure they aren't the only ones fighting these fights. I think that's a nice place to land today. As always, I welcome your comments and please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. Please don't go anywhere because coming up next is my exclusive interview with Dr. Alan Barsky. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.